This is the movie that Rex Reed called the most horrifying motion picture I have ever seen. This film is positively ruthless in its attempt to drive you right out of your mind. It accomplishes everything it sets out to do with brilliance and unparalleled terror. This is the horror movie to end them all. horrifying motion picture I have ever seen. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from New Line Cinema. What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. as real, just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to have a true artisan of film, a uh, renowned cinematographer, Mr. Daniel C. Pearl. Uh, he cut his teeth with the uh, original 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He has done over 400 music videos, and he was so good they brought him back to do the 2003 remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Mr. Pearl, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks, Dan. Nice to have you here with us, Daniel. Uh, looking forward to talking to you. You're originally from the Bronx, right? Uh, my folks are from the Bronx. Uh, there's a, there, there, I, I thought I was born in the Bronx. My mother corrected me on that. I, I was actually born in, 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 in Manhattan. Uh, 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 there, I am listed someplace on the Internet, probably Wikipedia or something like that, as being born in the Bronx. Um, they also, if, there also is a, an incorrect birth date for me as well on, on the Internet. 
I managed to get it off of IMDb by telling them it was incorrect. When they when they when they wanted to know what the correct one was, I told them I didn't recollect what that was. <laughs> <laughs> and you know and uh, Daniel, did you grow up in New York? I no, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, okay, there's there's a, a good story, and you can tell tell us whether this is true or not. But I read this off of Wikipedia, so it's just about got to be true. <laughs> that uh, uh, you met Toby Hooper. You got your your master's degree at the University of Texas, and you met Toby Hooper in a film lab. And he was, you were giving him some advice on some filters to use, and uh, you made his acquaintance. And he wanted you to shoot this film he was working on, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because he thought it was important that a Texan shoot the film. <laughs> is that, that true? Is, that is virtually 100% true, with the exception I did. We did meet in a lab. I did give him some information. I don't think he recollected that. I don't think he recalled me from that. He had just seen some of my work. And he did, he did, when he called me up, said that he did want a Texan to shoot it. I right away became much more Texan sounding than I was. <laughs> <laughs> My draw, I slowed down. You know, in those days, in the, in the, in the early 70s in, in, in Texas, they, they always tell you, if you're East Coast, slow down, man, slow down. You talk too fast. Slow down. We can't understand what you're saying. So, I, you know, I immediately went into my slowed down draw mode for him. Um, I was at that point what they call a transplant Texan. I had I had, I had married a Texan, so they, they considered me what they call transplant. But I was not a straight up Texan. Um, but anyhow, he, we did. I did advise him on how to shoot uh, something that he was shooting on another project about probably six or eight months prior to Chainsaw. Uh, we were shooting fluorescent lights, and I, I advised him to use a CC30 magenta filter, uh, which is still the the tried and true uh, fix for green spiking. Fluorescent lights, uh, but he, I, don't, I don't believe he recollected uh, that encounter. Um, although I, I talked, I do. People ask me the first time I met him. That's where I first met him. Cool. But uh, there was no mention of that. He, he just said that he he recognized the best cinematographer in the state of Texas and wanted me to shoot the picture. Well, we we had it Terry McMinn on our show yeah. talk about her experiences with the Chainsaw Massacre. Now I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna ask you this question: When you shot this film and Obviously, it was pretty much of a no-budget film, and a lot of people in the movie figured the movie would probably never be seen by anybody. I mean, it's the same thing about the Friday the 13th, the first one. But when you, when the film was shot, um, how many years later have has it uh, attracted people to you because of Chainsaw Massacre? What I mean is, you know, it being in 74, I mean, the VHS era came out like, what, 82, 83, so then people started getting the VHS of Chainsaw Massacre, and then it became more popular because people could actually watch it in their homes. Sure. When did it actually come to you that, hey, my God, this thing's a caught film? Uh, almost immediately. Um, it went right into the uh, Museum of Modern Art Permanent Film Collection. Uh, oh, yeah, and, um, it, it, you know, at the time that it was released, uh, people, you'd be in a restaurant, people were talking about it at tables around you. They'd be talking about it on television. Uh, it was, it had a lot of buzz. It really was, it was huge, you know. The thing that, that's, that, that was interesting for me, you know, I, I was 23 years old when I photographed the original. And I was, when, um, when Toby asked me to do the picture, um, I played a little bit cool. Yeah, you know, send me, let me, let me read the script. Let me see if I like it, right? Uh, I had, I had told all my friends when I got my master's degree, that I thought I was pretty good at the cinematography thing and that I would be the youngest man to ever shoot a feature that I would shoot a feature by the time I was 35 years old. 
Um, three weeks later, after I made that, and all my friends got pretty pretty bold shit right there. I said, yeah, well, I think, you know, I think I'm good at this. I, you know, I think I can pull this off. I will, I will set a record. Uh, well, three weeks later, the phone rang, and, and it was Toby. Uh, I my friends happened to be there uh, at the house. As film, you know, as you guys know, film buffs we tend to hang out with each other because nobody else really cares about what's what's interesting to us. So, uh, anyhow. Uh, I hung up the phone and I said, "What's going on, man? You look like electrified." I said, "I'm, I'm 12 years ahead of schedule. I just been asked to shoot a movie." <laughs> I love it. And, um, and then, uh, then I thought, to, I read it right, and um, it was super powerful there in the screenplay. It was really, really strong. I mean, it made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. It was so, so strong written. Uh, and I thought to myself, why the hell would they hire me? I, I wouldn't hire me if I was in their position. What the hell would, are they doing? But I wanted the job, obviously. I, I right. saw it as an opportunity for myself. Um, so I, I, I talked to Toby. Um, uh, I rang him back after I read the screenplay. I said, you know, I like it. You know, And I thought to myself, we better get this thing going before they come to their senses. That's <laughs> smart thinking. I thought they'd bring in you know, Laszlo Kovacs or Vilmo Zygmunt. They were... Uh, do you guys know who they are, Laszlo and Vilmos? Do you know them at all? They're, they're two Hungarian cinematographers. Um, Vilmos went on to do, you know, Close Encounters and, you know, uh, oh, yeah, 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 saw, yeah. you know, uh, so many great, great films. Vilmos is one of the greatest of all times. Uh, still, still working at 83 years old or something like that now. Um, uh, maybe 80, 81, 80, 80 or 81. Uh, and Laszlo passed away a few years ago. Well, they eventually, when I became a member of the American Society of Cinematographers, I became friends with both Laszlo and Vilmos. In fact, Vilmos opened up a film school a couple of years ago, and he had me teaching a music video class in it. Uh, but we used to joke about that, that they, Vilmos, had, I'd already shot McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I wouldn't take anything like, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But Laszlo obviously would, would take the job because that was, you know, Laszlo was still doing those kind of films. Right now, uh, because of my fear that they would hire someone, you know, uh, I'd lose the job. Uh, so I said to Toby, "So, you know, when is this going to start?" I figured I got to, I got to get it going, you know. And um, you know, um, uh, Toby goes, "Well, we're making the film for eighty thousand dollars, and we have seventy. Yeah, and it's, it's a guy who's an oil lobbyist, basically, um, Bill Parsley, who was, uh, you know, he was, you know, we were a bunch of hippies." You know, and this this guy was definitely on the other side of the, uh, you know, <laughs> political line from us. But he had the money. He was the money man. And uh, he said, so as soon as we get the other ten thousand, we're going to start. So I hung up the phone, and um, you know, there's there are quite a few wealthy people in, in Texas, and I met a guy in, in film school who was who was who was wealthy, but was no longer involved with filmmaking. Uh, but occasionally we'd go, he'd call me up, and we'd go to films together. And so uh, I contacted him, and he said, "Yeah, bring me the screenplay." And three hours later, he ran back. I'm in, and uh, so I, I locked up that final um, ten thousand, uh, which uh, got the picture rolling. Um, it also it was an excellent foil to the to our other backer who kept trying to manipulate us. Uh, and Toby was very knew very well how to use this other this backer that I found. That, you know, because my guy was he was so interested in the project, he wanted to. He wanted in for the whole thing. Right. Anytime the uh, the the, uh, the right wing guy tried to say, tell us something we didn't like, Toby said, "Well, you want your money back?" Uh, you know, just uh, you know, so he had, he had, that was quite bolstering for Toby. 
Um, and for me, what happened was uh, I was uh, I I got a very minimal salary as a cinematographer, but I was given um, a percentage four percent of the film as a find, for finding one eighth of the backing. Um, they divided uh, they divided the um, the profits from the films up that way into three three companies, uh, and uh, the backing company had one third, so I got one eighth of that one third. Oh wow! Uh, uh, so that was a very fortuitous thing for me. I, I still get checks today. Not huge, but they're, they're you know like one or two thousand dollars. They come out of the blue. You never know, you know what's that they're coming. So it's, it's quite a good thing. I was just going to ask you. I mean, I don't want to pry, but that's uh, it's always an interest for me. Is people like yourselves that <clears throat> film so early, in the, in the, especially in the seventies, and the budget that you mentioned that if the axes still get decent. Uh, dividends because the film is such a cult classic. I mean, there, there were some, you know, back in back in the day, you know, in the heyday, there were some twenty, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollar years. Uh, and, there, and you know, and, and spotty. It depends. What happens is when the new one's released, that renews the interest in the original, and so it, it generates a lot. Yeah, of money. yeah, I, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that after after we release the remake, I think we got some, something like six or seven thousand. Around that time from the original, I don't have any piece of the remake. I, I you know, I did a good job, and I got paid a whole lot more money on the remake than I did on the original. But I don't have any any participation in it financially. Uh, something I should mention to you, though, at the time, you guys got to realize, 1973 is not like today. Oh yeah, um, there was there were you know New York there were th- three networks. Fox didn't even exist as a network, right? There was CBS, NBC, and ABC. New York had two, you know, had a, a uh, uh, you know, had a uh, PBS channel, and it had a uh, maybe one or two independent channels, and Chicago had an independent channel. That was it. I mean, Austin, Texas, at that time, didn't even have the three networks. LBJ owned uh, the LBJ, the, the president. He owned uh, the television station there, and I forget which two. It was that one was two networks, and it flipped back and forth with whatever LBJ wanted us to watch. Huh. And and so um, there were not a lot of places to, to get work, and so the, the routine, the cinematography was very much a father to son thing at that time, you know. And uh, in fact, when I tried to join the union, the guys even told me, "No, no, we only we have a pack. We only sign for our sons and our friends' sons, and vice versa. We don't let anybody new into this game." So um, at that time, in the union system. Uh, you were a loader. Basically, you put film in magazines and you cleaned lenses and brought lenses to the first assistant, a loader in the second, in your 20s. In your 30s, you became a first assistant who was a, basically a, a focus puller or follow focus man. Uh, you know, you lo- loaded the camera, cleaned the gate, and, and follow focus, which is a very, very important position and, and actually is a discipline that's unique in its own way. It doesn't really have anything to do with anything else in the, in the cinematography department. Uh, it's just this, but some guys are very good at it. Uh, in, in those days, in your 40s, you became an operator, and if you were good good at everything else, in your 50s, you're lucky you became a DP. So here I come in at, at 23, and I'm you know a DP. Um, wow. Um, I, I'll tell you this much: that a lot of the a lot of the the look of that film, right now, that film, you know, as a cinematographer, you're responsible for 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 two things. You're responsible for the lighting, and you're responsible for the lensing. And by the lensing, I mean, you know, it's just the shots themselves, right? right. So it's not only the lens choice, but also the, the moving, you know, the camera movement and the angles and things like that. So 
and you're setting angles or making moves and choosing lenses and, and your lighting. Well, um, you know, uh, I've always felt that composition is something that's kind of intuitive. And I designed a lot of the shots in the original, and it's a lot of the movement in the original is what, what makes it so powerful for people. And uh, I designed a lot of those shots myself. Um, there's a big, there's a whole big thing about, you know, what, there's, there's one shot in the original. Shot we made um, where the girl, uh, where Terry McMinn yep. uh, is sitting on the swing. Yep. And uh, <laughs> after Bill Vale's been the first victim, and this is actually the beginning of the second act, right? And um, you know, it's quite a change of tone. And um, you know, she stands up and she walks to the house, and we are behind the swing, and we glide under the swing and follow her up to the house. Um, that's just a shot I made up there on the spot. I realized that I could lay down on the platform dolly that I had and fit under the swing and hold the camera off the front of the the dolly, get low enough and tilt up and keep the track out of the shot. Um, it's a beautiful shot. Now, but look, this is a very interesting part of it, right? Uh, I'm 64 now. I was 23 then, right? Uh-huh. Uh, I still shoot Kanye West and Mariah Carey. I'm not, I haven't become in any way... Uh, you know, you never know. Even by looking at me, you wouldn't know that I'm 64. I certainly don't think it. I don't act it, and I don't look it. So therefore, I'm not in my mind. Right. But I do have the experience of somebody who's been a DP for 40 years. And that's that's a valuable thing. But I'm still learning about lighting. It never that never ends. Light is an ongoing. You're never going to know everything there is to know about light. Um, a big part of what I'm, what I'm what I'm driving at here is that that film, the original. Has very much has a, a, a cinema verite documentary kind of feeling to it, right? Right. And that has not to do with the move. That has to do with the lighting and the look. And that comes about from a couple of different things. One has to do with how little I knew at age 23. I thought I knew it all. <laughs> now I know I didn't, but I thought I knew it all at the time. And the other thing is the technology of, of that era, right? Uh, I was shooting that. Are you guys familiar with uh, ASA or ISO on film on film speeds? Not really. Basically, it's a number. I can't believe we lost that technology so quickly. It's a number relative to the sensitivity of light of the of the of a film stock. 
and every time you double that number, you double the sensitivity of the of the film to light. So, for example, today we're shooting principally with there is some film films fast film stock is 400 ASA, uh, easily pushed to 800 ASA. Um, the ratings on these, um, you guys still there? Can I do something on my computer? The rating today on the digital cameras that are now popular, the Red, uh, Epic, and the Alexa, uh, is 800 ASA. Um, at the time, uh, there, uh, in 73, Kodak had the fastest film they made is 100 ASA. If I'm telling you, each time it's doubled the light, it doubled the sensitivity, so you got 100 to 200 is one time, 200 to 400 is the second time, and then double again, so it's four times. So the 800 that you have now requires one-fourth the light, right? Now, that's, so you go, that's not so bad. Well, here's the problem. At the time, they go, okay, uh, we couldn't shoot the film in 35 millimeter. One part of it is we couldn't afford the film, and two, Toby wanted this handheld shooting style, and there were limited cameras in those days, 35 millimeter blimp cameras, cameras that didn't make noise while they were shooting them, uh, weighed 160 pounds. Right? You're not putting that on your shoulder, obviously. Right. Uh, so uh, there were, they had just only about a year, maybe two years earlier, invented the Panaflex, which is a 32 pound blimp camera, and the Ari BL, which is around about the same with a lens about 30 some odd pounds. Uh, they just weren't available. There weren't enough in the world for us to rent them uh, on, our, on our modest budget. So we were forced to go 16 millimeter, which I think was a, was a wise choice because the shooting style that we had with that lightweight camera was integral to our making the picture. Um, but it meant, and they, they said to me, okay, but the negative film, this 100 ASA film, is too grainy for 16 millimeter. You have to shoot something that's even, even finer grained so that when it blows up, it's not going to be ridiculously grainy when I put it on a 35 millimeter blow up print and it projected in theaters, which meant I had to go to an ASA 25 film. So that becomes yet again another factor of four because you have to double. Uh, you know, in fact, I was wrong about when I told you about the 100 ASA to 800 ASA, it's actually eight times the light because when you go to 200, that's double. The 400 is double again, so it becomes four times. And then double again, this becomes eight times. Well, this puts another factor on it, and basically it comes out to being 16 times the light that I had to shoot with that you would use today. Now, what that means, and, and now you combine that with, at the time, we didn't have all the big bright lights, the HMI lighting, if you guys are familiar with HMI, so, yeah. you know, uh, they didn't exist in 73. Uh, they didn't come out for another four or five years. So it was only arcs. Of course, I didn't have any arcs. I didn't have that kind of a job uh, going on. So I'm lighting basically with very inefficient tungsten lights with either gel to make them look daylight or, uh, you know, and because of that, I, I, I didn't have enough light. I basically told them that they should, on my lens that I have, you know, the lens has F-stops, right? And the most wide open one, I said, we should just re-engrave this lens where it says yes. And when I throw light at this thing, when I finally get enough that we shoot, I'll say yes, and we'll always be shooting wide open on the lens because this is this is my quandary here. I'm having to bring light to this thing, and I don't have a big lighting budget. I don't have a big lighting crew. Um, until I went to nights, I had nothing bigger than a 2K, a 2,000-watt light, um, which then you could plug into your wall. Right? I, I eventually 
when I went to Nice, they gave me two 5,000-watt lights and one 10,000-watt light, so two 5Ks and one 10K. I thought I was badass. I thought I could burn the fucking city down. You know? I mean, never seen anything like it. <laughs> but now, hell, you know, I, I might use that, that much light today on a close-up of Mariah Carey, you know, just on a close shot of her, right? let alone a night shot of people running through the forest, which is what I was doing in those days. Really. Wow, so, wow. So what, what, I, what I'm driving at is there's a very interesting... You have my 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 intuitive uh, sense of composition, and the shots that I that I was designing with Toby, right? Mm. I think are quite. I wouldn't say they're sophisticated, but they're very effective. They're very they're working at a very high level. And the look of the film is quite the opposite. The look of the film is quite uh, you know uh, you know documentary almost like you know cinema verite. Like you smash a light at something and shoot, right? Right. Uh, so. Um, that, so that a lot of the look of that film has to do with the technology of the day, which forced me into certain situations, and my lack of knowledge. Right? That's that's what gives, contributes to the look. Now, what happened there was, and, and this is an important thing. When I was asked to shoot the remake, eventually, that's a whole long story which I'll go through for you. But the thing that was important to me because actually, when Toby he did a sequel, right? Canada, right. And I told him I had just I was shooting um, a remake of uh, Invaders from Mars with Toby, and he was next going off to shoot that film. And I said, Toby, you know, you ought to give it to somebody else. You shouldn't do it because if you don't kill it, then everybody's going to say you got lucky the first time, right? So when I got hired to shoot the remake, right, it was essential to me that I kill this film. Okay, so I show up on I've been shooting a, a beer commercial in Ukraine. And uh, and I come back to Austin, Texas for day one on the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre in uh, two thousand in the summer of two thousand and two. It releases in 03, right? Right. In 02. And um, they start. We sit down. and go. Well, okay. So um, it's going to be gritty. the two producers, right? They go. It's going to be gritty and grainy like the original, right? And I go. Well, guys, you want to shoot sixteen millimeter? And they go. Well, what are you talking about? I said. Well. I can't make 35 millimeter look gritty and grainy like the 16 millimeter of the, of the original. Uh, and they go, "Are you crazy? We're going to tell Michael Bay we're shooting this first, you know, film he's producing." And you know, you know, Michael Bay went on to buy several horror films and and, and produce remakes, right? And this is their new venture, and this is the, the two producers' first film. And they go, "Are you crazy? We're going to tell Michael Bay we're shooting 16 millimeter." I said, "It's not going to be gritty and grainy." And they go, well, well, what do you mean? I said, it's, that's not, we're not going to get that. I said, not to mention, I go, guys, this is a different audience in 2002 than we had that we were shooting for in 1973. I said, because of Michael Bay, because of Marcus Nispel, because of Daniel Pearl, and because of a dozen other people, this audience comes to the theater with a totally different visual aesthetic. This is the MTV audience. These people have cut their teeth on music videos. This is, and we're going to make the MTV version of this film, and it's going to have a look to it, right? Hopefully, it's going to be pertinent to the subject matter. I'm not going to suddenly make it a beautiful, you know, glossy beauty shoot, right. but it's not going to be gritty and grainy like the original, because for one, I already did that, and Marcus Nispel started laughing. He he went through quite a lot of a struggle to get me out of the picture even though I was shooting everything he was doing at that time he was doing uh, commercials and um, 
you know, it was just sort of coincidence that they asked him to do the picture. Then they then he wanted me to shoot the movie. They did not want me to shoot the movie. Um, for one reason, I had shot for Michael Bay some, and um, he had uh, had in, uh, my daughter when she was eight years old was coming to visit me on the set, and he yelled out it was Father's Day, and I'd asked him and the producer if my wife could bring my daughter by because when we wrapped, I was flying to Miami that night, and I wanted to see my daughter on Father's Day, and they said it was all right, but. Um, when they, my wife and daughter came walking into the studio uh, at five minutes of one, five minutes before lunch, Michael Bay yelled out at the top of his lungs, who the fuck is that kid? What the fuck is that kid doing here? And um, uh, my daughter got a little bit freaked out. Meatloaf, it was a video for Meatloaf. Uh, I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Yep. And um, uh, Meatloaf was very cool. He disarmed it. He disarmed the situation right away. By, he, went, he had his, uh, his Beauty and the Beast, he had his Beast makeup on. And he went over to my daughter, peeled up one of the prosthetic pieces, because look, I'm not really a monster, and she, you know. And he totally diffused the thing. But my wife sort of held it against Michael Bay, and there was, there was some, you know, she was handling my booking at times, and so there was a bit of bad blood went on there, which which is fine. I, I'm not going to complain because our daughter was a very very important thing to us, and right. uh, totally uncool. Um, it's funny when they, they when they called me up. Uh, they go, we'll call on you because, you know, Marcus insists we call you, but we really, we really don't want to hire Daniel Pearl. What we want to do is we want to hire the next Daniel Pearl. And I started laughing. I said, I said, well, you know what? I'm looking for the next Daniel Pearl, too. So if you guys find him, let me know because I could use him as well. You know? <laughs> oh, good answer. <laughs> what a ridiculous thing to say. It is. <laughs> uh, God almighty. Uh, it just went, it went around and around and around uh, on this thing. At one point, um, they were going to hire a guy who went on to become quite a good cinematographer, Mitch Amundsen, but at that time he had just come from shooting a Disney Care Bears or something like that. Something <laughs> and, right. you know, like, and, and Marcus told me to go to make me use this guy who shot the Care Bears. And I said, you're not going to shoot te- fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the, somebody who just did the Care Bears. You know? So uh, anyhow, um, that credit may not be exactly right, but anyhow, uh, it was something like that. Um, and in the end, you know, I said, no, no, I, I, I've, I've got to do this because Marcus is my friend. He's making this film. Marcus was adamant that I shoot it. He kept, uh, because he knew two things. He knew that I attributed my entire success of my career. Uh, and by this point now, in 2002, not only am I highly, very highly regarded in music video, I mean, I've already at that point won two MTV Moonmen, uh, you know, for best cinematography. I've won... Um, uh, uh, AICP best cinematography for commercials for a Motorola commercial that I shot with Marcus um, you know he 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 wanted me to shoot it he knew that I would give it everything it would not be just another job to me because of this philosophy that I had that if you remake this picture you've got to make it as well as you did the first time or everybody's going to say you got lucky the first time so Marcus knew that I would take it someplace new, because he knew I didn't. I was a guy who didn't like to knock anybody off. I don't even like to knock myself off, right? I like to go someplace new. So he knew that, and he also, um, you know, he knew that that I that I had to kill it. That I, I had to get it great, or else, I, uh, you know, he was oh, I got lucky, you know, 30 years earlier or 29 years earlier when I did the original. So that's basically the energy that we went into it with. Now. Um, but to continue with this thing, you know, basically, 
kind of what's going on. What was going on with with those guys was it was they said to me at one point they go you know as we're getting closer to hire me on the job they go well you know um you know this is you know you're you're you you worked on the original so if this film is successful you know you could get all the press. Oh my God! You're kidding me! You're kidding me! Exactly right. That was my reaction. I went, "What?" I said, "What a horrible problem to have! <laughs> if the first film you produce is successful, you're going to worry about me getting the press." I said, I, I, "I don't know what to do. I can't erase myself. I don't know what to tell you about that, guys. Uh, hopefully, you're going to just be bigger men than that." I said, "Because what a horrible problem that would be if your film's a huge success." You know oh I mean? my God! Where are you guys coming from? You know what the fuck? Basically, I sort of hung up on him. Um, oh, I would do more than that. Shit. Yeah. So uh, eventually, I didn't have an agent. I had to put an agent in the middle of this thing. This is just too crazy. And at one point, I was telling them the story about the breakdown with Michael Bay and my and my daughter and my wife, and and, and Brad. One of the producers goes, oh, no, you too. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, when my son was eight, I brought him to the Pearl Harbor shoot, and Michael Bay did the same thing. He yelled at the top of his lung, what the fuck is that kid doing here? And I said, yeah, well, that's uh, that's basically Michael's M.O., you know. So anyhow, in the end, uh, somehow, they, really what it was about was Michael Bay wanted to control Marcus Nispel. They're two of the, two of the stronger personalities in Hollywood, right? And... The idea is was don't give the first time director his DP. Get let it be the company boy who's going to be responsible to uh, Foreman Fuller and Bay rather than to Nispel. And so that's basically what they were what they were about. In the end, somehow I wound up on the job. I had to take less money than I thought I should be making at the time, but uh, I couldn't leave Marcus alone on it. And I also felt like. You know, I, I thought Marcus is a great filmmaker. I figure he's going to make a good Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And for fuck's sake, I could not let my buddy make remake my film well without me being involved. So right. I sort of I had to, you know, it was just too ironic for it to, you know, not to happen. So I did it. Now <clears throat> we start shooting the remake, right? And uh, I, I don't know if I think I mentioned one of you guys. I, I play basketball as my my uh, my hobby. That's what keeps me fit, keeps me moving, moving young, keeps me looking young, keeps me you know with a good 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 attitude. Uh, and uh, I started to play basketball with one of the producers on the second week of uh, the second weekend, right? Of photography, we get in the car to go to we're playing at the University of Texas. Um, in their gym there, and he goes, you know, Daniel. He goes, I don't know what to tell you. You know, we were worried about you. We were very worried. You thought, you know, you, but you've been so great for us. We thought you'd be Marcus's guy, and we wouldn't be able to control. But you've actually helped us. Every problem we've had with his vision or where he was going, you've been able to sort of bring him round to our side. Like for example, Marcus wanted the kids to be dirty in the remake, right? He wanted them dirt on their faces. They've been living in his van for three or four days. They're dirty. It's disgusting, right? The producers are going, they can't be dirty. they got to be fuckable. The girls have to want to fuck the... girls in the audience have to want to fuck the guys, and the guys in the audience have to want to fuck the girls. They can't be dirty. They can't be ugly. So, Mark is going, they're going to be dirty. I want them dirty. This is how it's going to be. So, eventually, we start shooting. Uh, we lit... Marcus also, he was so... He was... He, he was at the time one of the top commercial directors in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And but but because it was his first feature, 
everybody felt free to tell him what to do. Uh. Direct, this is not how directors roll. Right? Directors don't like to be told what to do. They didn't become directors because they wanted to be told what to do. They became directors because they wanted to tell everybody else what to do. Right? That's a one-way street. Right? So, <laughs> uh, he's like, you know, he goes, we're going to shoot in the van. It's 11 pages in the remake, right? 11 pages. And, you know, guy, you know, guys, in a feature film, you basically, you're shooting somewhere between three and four pages a day. That's right. what your, your ambition is, right? Marcus goes, uh, excuse me, when I quote Marcus, I speak with my German accent because he's German. We're going to shoot 11 pages in one day. We're going to blow their fucking minds and they leave me the fuck alone. Right? That's his plan. So, on the Friday before the Monday, we're going to start shooting. We pre-light the van and we, and we rehearse with the cast in there, right? And they are sweating like crazy in there. So it's 100 degrees in Austin, Texas. And I've got to light the interior of this van close to as bright as, as, the, as the human eye would relate it to the exterior, which, you know, film is a lot, has a lot less of a dynamic range, um, you know, contrast uh, handling ability uh, than the human eye does. So if you were to expose where the outside, where you can see what's outside, like in the original, if you look at the original, I didn't light the interior, I just exposed for the faces on the interior, and the exterior is blown out. It's almost like they're driving around a white limbo. Huh. Toby and I actually joked about it when we several days later when we saw the film, we were driving around for days. We just could have done it stopped because you can't even tell what the hell's going on outside. It's so blown out. Uh, of course, I didn't want to do that in a remake. That was one of the things I was going to fix in my, for myself in the remake. So I lit it, uh, and and, and it, you know, a lot of people love the lighting on the interior. But the fact of the matter is that. Marcus wanted to do it in one day. And I go, Marcus, I said, if you if you insist that we put dirt on them, you can see that they're sweating, the makeup's going to keep coming off. He goes, well, I don't want them just looking like, you know, cream puffs. I said, how about if they're sweaty? I said, sweaty sexy. My light will look good in the wet. You know, the wet the wet skin, the light will take the, the wet skin will take the light beautifully. They'll be a bit sweaty. They'll have something going on. And we won't have to replace it. It's not going to slow us down. Every time we cut the camera or on a long take, we're not going to have to cut because sweat ran through the dirt and the dirt doesn't match what it looked like before. Right, right. right. So he goes, okay. So the producers, they practically, I mean, they were like down on their knees bowing to me when, you know, around the corner without him seeing it going, I can't believe you won this battle for us. I'm going, yeah, guys, well, you know. And so anyhow, by the end of the second week, now... They, we're riding to, the, to go play basketball, and he goes, you know, Daniel, it's incredible. He said, we were really worried about you. We thought you were going to be Marcus's ally. He goes, you know, we're making a $5 million. We, the below the line was $5 million, right? There's a, I think the above the line was $9 million, but they paid a lot just for the rights uh, to, the, to the remake. He goes, we're making a $5 million picture here. He goes, the studio's freaking out. They, said they, they say it looks like a $40 million picture, and they're worried that we're blowing our whole budget in the first two weeks. <laughs> we're, right on, we're right on schedule because you're doing such a good job. Nobody can believe this is a $5 million picture. It looks like a $40 million picture. And I said, well, thank you. It's very nice of you to say. He goes, yeah, but we have, we have one more favor to ask. I go, well, what's that? He goes, well, are you familiar with um, Harry Knowles? I go, yeah, I am. He, go, uh, he goes, well, you know, uh, he goes, they got wind that we're doing this remake. And, you know, this is the year, the remake was the year after Psycho remake, which is a complete disaster, right? Yes. Where they tried to remake the thing shot for shot, right? So he goes, you know, everybody, they've been bitching and moaning. There's nothing sacred. Can't fucking Michael Bay leave Texas Chainsaw Massacre alone? They have to fuck up everything that we've ever appreciated in our entire, you know, lives. And it's all that kind of sour shit going on, right? 
And then, and then the producer says to me, that's going on for a month before we started it, and for the first two weeks, because all of a sudden, last night, somebody said, hang on, guys, they've hired the original cinematographer. He killed the original. Maybe he's going to bring something new to this. And the whole tone of the message board changed. Everybody's going, oh, that could be cool to bring this guy back. So, so they tell me the story. I said, yeah, so, well, that's, that's nice to hear. He goes, yeah, so the favor is we want you to do interviews. I go, oh, okay. I said, we used to worry about me getting all the press, and now they set up a situation where every day before I leave, we were shooting nights, right? So I'd have one interview before I'd leave the hotel every day, and then at lunch I'd have another interview. So they came to their senses about that, and they realized that, wait, hang on a second, this is the possibly the one thing that the public might think is cool about this project. Mm-hmm. So it totally, totally turned around. Now, interestingly, and I got wrap up off of this, and this is all this is all around the making of the film and actually making the film. But every interview would start with, "So it's going to be gritty and grainy like the original, right?" And I go, "No." And they go, "What do you mean, no?" I go, "I already did that, and that was 1973's audience. This is 19. This is going to be 2003's audience. It's a different audience. We don't take the same visual approach." And everybody go, "Well, are you sure?" I go, "This is what I'm doing." So I'm definitely sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> it freaked them all out. I mean, even the producers are going like, "Well, what, you know, what, what are we going to tell Michael?" I said, "Look, you know, when they in, in the process before they hired me, right? Marcus kept holding out and holding out and holding out, right? And they finally go, okay, have Daniel send us a reel.' I go, send him a reel. <laughs> so, okay, here's the reel." Uh, first thing up there was a Divinals video, I Touched Myself, that Michael Bay directed, that I shot for him. His, uh, right? And, <laughs> and the next video up was uh, Meet Loaf, I Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That, that I shot for Michael Bay. And then the next thing I put on there was the Fuji's Ready or Not video that I shot for Marcus Nispel. And then I gave him a copy of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That was my real thing. <laughs> That's the Marcus, last nine. Marcus calls me up the next day and he's laughing his ass off. He's, he can hardly talk. He's laughing so hard. I go, what is it, Mike? He goes, you know that real? He goes, I know you basically tell them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> he goes, but you have no idea how well it worked. He goes, he goes, I'm sitting in there. We put the reel up. I'm sitting here with Michael Bay and the divine. And he goes, Marcus, he goes, check this out. This is my video. It's my first, this I got my first directing nomination for best director for this video. Right? Then comes um, the Meatloaf video comes on. He goes, Marcus, you know, when Bruckheimer uh, saw this, he called me up and said, you shouldn't be making videos. You should be directing features. This video is what got me into the feature business, right? Then comes the, the Meatloaf, the Fuji's video, right? And Marcus, he goes, this is, what, this is why we think you should. We saw this video is what made us think you should be directing feature films. So Marcus goes, so guys, why are we fucking around here? There's like a reoccurring theme here, you know? So what, you know, why, why, this is like not just small shit, this is major shit that's happened to all of our lives. And, um, you know, so they finally acquiesced. That's how I found, that's how we finally bagged it. Uh, Daniel. Yeah. You've actually, uh, probably responsible for me being here tonight. I've told this story before, but I'm going to quickly tell it because of your association with the film. Okay. Um, when it come when it come out, it was uh, banned in England I for a while. That. I know it was banned. And, uh, yeah, and luckily, it was the ban was lifted for a short while, and I was lucky enough 
to go along with my sister and her boyfriend at the time to see the was much too young but I managed to get in and I've said and I think uh, Gruesome has said as well shot that, I mean, it's, just, it's been my favourite movie and that was my introduction to horror and that's never stopped but the shot that really got me was uh, hitting the guy over the head and dragging his body and slamming the door that, that terrified me at the time <laughs> um, but that was what sold me into horror but Anybody home? Hello? Hey, Pam. Hello? I, I it, it terrified us at the time too. <laughs> yeah. When he did it. Yeah, it was, yeah. The, and, slam, and the slamming the door was not actually scripted and intended. Um, he did it for some something. He just did it sort of improv, and he did it with such force that it was like, oh fuck. Gunnar, <laughs> Gunnar, you know, a huge Icelandic man, right? A gentle, gentle giant, a very a poet very you know mild-mannered guy but a huge giant giant of a man he could wield that chainsaw like it was a toothbrush in his hand it was crazy yeah. but anyhow he we thought he was knocking this when he slammed the door we thought oh my god the whole set's gonna fall <laughs> <laughs> but the whole thing shook if you look at it you see the whole set shake so wow but, um we've 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 all heard about how uncomfortable it was filming inside that house with the heat for all of the actors, was it was it the same for you? Was it difficult to shoot because it's of a, the heat? It's a funny thing, you know. I, I'm oblivious to hot. Um, I'm I'm very susceptible to cold. I don't like working in cold because as a cameraman, a cameraman is almost like a dancer, right? And you got to be if you're the operator, you got to feel you got to feel loose, and you know, so you can make smooth moves. But when you're cold, you're very tense, and like you know, you sort of tense up. Um, but uh, I, I never throughout my career. Um, heat doesn't doesn't bother me. Uh, I'm oblivious to it. I'm a cameraman. I have to be around hot lights. I don't have a choice. I don't get to you know. When I work outdoors. When I work in the desert. I don't get to go in. Everybody else gets to go in and out. I don't have to. So almost occupationally, as a cinematographer, you have to be oblivious to heat because you don't you don't get to to say oh it's too hot. I got to go inside for a minute or anything like that. This is not allowable. So I would say I remember it was hot. I know it was horribly hot for the actors. Um, Horribly hot for 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 Gunner and Leatherface, you know, with the masks. Um, uh, John Dugan, who plays the 108 year old man, he was so. It took um, my ex-wife did his makeup. Uh, it was the first time she'd ever put appliances on anybody. Uh, it took her nine hours to do it, and he announced he was so. It was so. It was particularly hot. It was over 100 that day. Uh, and this is, you know, we, you didn't have like big portable air conditioning units like you have today. Now we air condition wherever we're shooting, whatever we do, we just change it. But that was not possible in those days. And um, 
John Dugan, he announced that he was only going to be made up like that once and we had to shoot him out. So we were already nine hours into our day when he finally got ready. It took us another 18 to shoot him out. So we actually did a 27-hour day Oof. during the hot, hot, hot heat. And the only thing I, what I remember about it was they were. It was the dinner scene. Is in he's in the dinner scene.
that the 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 head cheese um, was actually rotting in place and, and sticking up, so we had to keep replacing the head cheese because it was actually going bad from the from the from the heat uh, and creating you know offensive odors. Uh, not to mention our bodies as well are creating offensive odors from that heat. But but other than that, uh, you know, everybody else will talk about heat more so than cinematographers. It's like something we're not allowed to be. Uh, we can't say it's too bright. We can't say it's too hot. <laughs> <laughs> because we're responsible when, for both of those things. <laughs> when, it, when it was released and it started uh, getting banned, how did you feel about that after working on it? When I heard it was banned in the UK... I was I so I was so over the moon. I mean, you got to imagine I'm 24 <laughs> years old now, right? I've hit a home run. Like I said, people in the, in the restaurants, people are talking about it on television. They're talking about it. You know, the comedians are making jokes. I mean, this becomes you know right away. This becomes a, an iconic film, right? And I'm sitting there going, "Fuck, man! Some people their whole careers never make a film that's this well known." My first time at batting a feature, I fucking hit a home run. <laughs> I may never, I may never hit this height again. Jesus Christ, I actually started worrying about it. I'm going like, shit, you know? What if I just, like, shot my wad here on the first time and never, you know, it never happens for me again? And, and do, you, do you ever sit and watch the film now? Uh, I do occasionally watch it. Um, it's funny, you know, my, my present wife, who I've been with for 34 years, and she's also the mother of our daughter, who's 27 years old, uh, they had never watched it. Our daughter was 16 when the, when the remake was released, and she had, of course, had to go to the premiere. Uh, had to meet the movie stars, had to go. Uh, but she still, up until I think two years ago, had not watched the original. And she, she was telling me she was having it thrown a Halloween party. And I said, well, I gave you a DVD originally. You better fucking put it on your party. <laughs> <laughs> so she did. And uh, so she saw it. Um, but yeah, do I, I, I have watched it uh, in, in glimpses because, um, you know, occasionally now I'll go, people ask me to come. I speak about um, things, and so uh, I often talk about that shot that we spoke about under the swing, and I'll show it, and then I'll show Marcus's. That since that was a signature shot, uh, Marcus designed, and I helped him execute. He designed the shot, and I came up with the execution of it. Uh, what was supposedly a similar signature shot for the remake, um, the shot. You guys are all familiar with the remake, yeah? Yes. Yeah, yeah. the shot where, where the girl um, you know, shoots the, the hitchhiker that they pick up, uh, there's nothing ahead. The stray, I guess they pick up. She shoots herself in the head. No. Stop your Jesus Christ. Go back there. You made me go back there. I won't go back there. Back where? He's a bad man. He's a really bad man. He's a bad man. Oh, oh shit. Oh. You're all gonna die. Grab, grab it. Oh.
and then the camera travels from the front of the car back past the screaming passengers through her head out yeah. the back going out to a big open field that was basically um, a shot that Marcus designed in order to give the remake a signature shot as well that's beautiful so I do frequently talk to people, if they're film students or if I'm you know, teaching a class myself or the American Society of Cinematographers, which I'm a member of, will ask me to come in and speak to the students. They'll bring in students from different universities, and I'll have three or four of us come in. And so one of the things I talk about is that because I'm the only guy in the history of cinema who's actually remade the same film in the same position. Right? So it's a unique conversation, so I do sometimes do a – a thing where I'll, I'll show uh, the lead up to uh, Bill Vale getting killed in the original up to the, the dolly shot that takes her up to the house, uh, and then I'll show the, the you know the intended signature shot from the, from the remake, and then talk about both of those things. So, uh, but to actually sit down and watch the whole film through, I've not done that lately. No. Um, have you watched uh, this year's uh, 3D version? And what did I've you think not, of it? If you have, you've not seen it. I do have it in my Netflix queue. Uh, it, it didn't didn't do very much business. I, I I like to say that the only two Texas Chainsaw Massacres that ever made money was I shot both of them, the original and the 2003. Re, the 2003 remake was a top grossing film the week that it was released. Michael Bay, you know, uh, Marcus Nispel and I um, 
his agent got a limo and we went around to different theaters in Los Angeles, which is quite quite fun thing to do, right? You go to different neighborhoods, you know, some neighborhoods people yell, don't go in there, don't go in that, don't don't go in that house. People are talking to the screen. Other people are much quieter, you know, um, but it was quite fun. And we wound up at, for the midnight screening at Universal Studios here, right? And as we came in the back door, Michael Bay was standing there. He gave us both massive big hugs and said, guys, as of right now, I'm in the black. So he had, he was in the black at midnight on day one. On that oh, shit. Yeah. And so he was extremely happy. Um, you know, he already had the receipts. He already knew what, how, what it grossed on Friday night. I forget what it did uh, exactly. I think thirty-five million, something like that. But for a picture that cost five million to make below the line, that was incredible opening weekend. And um, you know, it, it it had some legs as well. It went for a while. You know, the original um, the original was handled was released by Bryanston, uh, two Italian guys who eventually were deported back to Italy. And they had they had they were distributing Deep Throat. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Warhol's Dracula, and Warhol's Frankenstein, and I forget if it was Legend of Boggy Creek or uh, or Night of the Living Dead. One of the two of those that they also had. So they had like five of the world's top independent features in a time when there weren't many independent features, and they somehow went bankrupt during that time. So there's a lot of dodgy business going on with those guys. Um, so there's no telling what what we really know about the gross of the original when it was released. You know, first of all, they gave us a quarter of a million dollars. We, we made the picture for eighty thousand dollars, right? I'm going to tell you another behind-the-scenes story you guys will like. Uh, my ex-wife and I—we were still—we were married at that time uh, because uh, you know it's hard to make a living 100% as a cinematographer in Austin, Texas. Uh, so she and I also had a bit of an editing business we, where we prepared negatives for for answer printing. Uh, which makes A and B rolls. You, you put in a sink block two rolls of film, and when there's a picture on roll A, there's not a picture on roll B. It's black, opaque black. And then when you make the cut, it switches over, and basically you run both of those through the printer, and that's how you make your edited piece with no splices in the final print. You run through the printer and you process it. Well, uh, we would do this for people for commercials because this is back, you have to realize, FedEx didn't exist in this time, and videotape didn't exist at this time, right? Right. So, right. so um, if you had a commercial that you needed to get out quickly, you we, you had to get the A and B rolls made for the lab, and then you would send somebody to, to Los Angeles to oversee the the work at the lab, and then make fifty prints and bring them back to Texas. Well, this was a sideline that we would do. We would do it overnight. People would get their edit approved 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the afternoon. They'd give us the film, and by the morning, for the flight, the guy to get on a plane to Los Angeles, we'd have the film edited into its printing printing rolls, the A and B rolls. But we charged a buck a shot. Well, I, I don't know what it was. like. Maybe it was a five or $600 minimum or something like that. Maybe $300 minimum. Something like that. I don't know what it was. Um, but the two of us would stay up all night long and do this. Well... They, they, everybody that was in the editorial department knew that we did this um, and the pro- process we would take, we'd empty our living room we'd put sheets up, four feet up the wall and the sheets would drape onto the floor and I'd sit there and I'd call out the edge numbers of each shot um, you know, the, my ex-wife would write down those numbers, then I would we'd go back through and we'd put them in order and I'd pull the shots and she would hang the shots up on the wall and then we'd, go th- then we'd get them all pulled 
hanging on the wall, and then we'd edit them back together. So they go, oh, we know how to do that. We, and she would, I would sit on one side of the table and edit the heads, and she would sit on the other side of the table and edit the tails of the preceding shot while we're together, splicing it back and forth. Is this making sense to you guys? You're following mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. definitely. So, so they go, well, we, we're not paying pearls to do that. We'll do that ourselves, right? Well, what they didn't know was that the tail of the shot, the splicer had to be used backwards, right? And so they had the splicer facing themselves, but both splicers needed to face my side of the table. They didn't know that. So consequently, they put, they scraped away. Toby edited the picture for six months, putting one frame in, one frame out, one frame in, one frame out. Drove several editors completely crazy. <laughs> then they mixed off the work print, which is the editing print, not the finished print. They did the mix at Tadio, right? They then did the, the negative conforming themselves, made the A and B rolls, and when they projected the film, there was a half frame, every last frame of every single shot was half black. The bottom half of every single shot was half black. So they couldn't take, they'd scraped the, the image away in order to make the edit, so they had to shorten, every single shot had to be shortened by one frame off the tail. So what's interesting is the masterpiece of horror is actually every single shot is one frame shorter than it's meant to be. <laughs> this is a complete error. And the, the error, the additional thing is, they now, because they'd already sold the film to Bryanston, they had to deliver it by such and such a date. Bryanston was already buying uh, uh, theater dates. And because the film was, every single shot was one frame shorter, they had to redo the sound because in three cuts it'd be visibly out of sync. So they had to remix it, and that had to be done on overtime because they they had a, an appointment which they used. Now it's a, a several weeks later, a month later, if they do an overtime, and that costs another $48,000. So it costs more than half of what we spent on the film just to cover up for this mistake right? that they made. right? And so that brought the budget up to 148000 128,000, excuse me. But the reason I started telling you this whole story was Bryanston gave us a quarter of a million dollars. So we, those of us who had profit participation, we got checks before the, the movie even went to the theaters. We had money. So I'm like, I'm totally mind blown by this, right? And myself and Toby, the two of us, we took it as this is a great credit. We run with this and go where we can. A lot of the other people, in my mind, I thought they were smaller thinking. They all thought they were going to get rich off of this movie, right? I, I knew I was make money off the movie, but I didn't see this as my end game. This is my end, not my end game. This is my beginning. This is my entry into filmmaking. To, back, to finish to answer your question, although it was banned in England, I was so high on riding the wave of a success that, you know, it didn't, at that time, it didn't seem to me like, oh, well, it's banned in England, but... Everybody, you know, is working for me just fine, and I, and 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 a lot of the other people, they wanted to start ramping up these lawsuits, and everybody told us, look, you don't want to, you don't want to have a lawsuit with these two Italian guys because you're going to wind up in the river or the ocean if you fuck with these guys, you know, and so don't do that. And I'm going, and I'm saying, look, stop wasting your time. That's the past, guys. Look forward. Use the picture for what it can do for you, not try and get as much as you can out of the picture, you know. And some some people listened, but mostly they didn't. Um, 
And so that's, in my mind, that's a big, really a big difference on who went where off that movie. Who, who took it to use it as a calling card and who took it, to, you know, and turned into sour grapes over it, that they didn't make as much money as they thought they should have for success. Yeah, you know, I, like Don, Daniel, I'm a big Texas Chainsaw Massacre fan, and uh-huh. so I, I've read a lot about it, and I had read that uh, when the, by the time the remake had come around, you were uh, very well established in your career, and yeah. they, they kind of had to lure you back, but that's not the case, uh, and I'm glad to hear that, because uh, it's, it's good that that you're so proud of what you did, because I think that's why Texas Chainsaw Massacre is such a classic, because... It's it's more than an exploitation or a horror film. It's so well shot, it's so well made, but it still has the the grimy indie quality to it. But yeah. you can tell that there's talent there. And uh, hearing you go on about, uh, you took a lot of pride in the original. You took a lot of pride in the remake. I'm I'm very glad to hear that. I think that, you know I tell everybody that they should watch them both. Although it's the same title and it's the same story, I think if you've watched one, does not mean you can't watch the other. You know, if you're if you're a fan of the genre, you're gonna love both of them. Exactly. Are are you a horror guy? Do you, do you like horror movies? And, and when <laughs> actually, <you> first... <laughs> actually, it's, it, actually, it's very funny. You know, I mean, I'm not that. I'm, I do like horror films. I do watch them, but I don't run out to see every one. I just happen to be very good at shooting them. <laughs> it's really a sense. You know, look. First of all, they want they want stylized. They want dramatic lighting. They want darkness. They want edginess. They want you to feel, make, you know, create a mood, create an emotion, make people uncomfortable. They want, you know, they, they really, they want great photography. You know, you go to a comedy and they, the director will tell you, like the fucking jokes. You know, anybody goes darker in this movie again, you're fired. Like the fucking jokes. Right? Uh, you know, but in a horror film, it's all about creating that mood. So, I love shooting them. I'm not a huge fan. It's funny because people start, when they talk to me about it, Oh, I, I know I was talking about the reference thing with uh, Requiem. The Brothers South, we were in Vancouver, and they had to leave. Before we were shooting while we were still in prep, they had to leave, leave for the weekend. And I said, well, listen, guys, you know, because they mentioned so many films. They said, what do you guys want me to watch while you're gone? I said, watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake over and over again. <laughs> you know, so basically, that's, and that's been the case. When I hired for the apparition, we hired, well, Friday the 13th was the same director and same producers as the remake of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So um, I think that there's a validity to it. And basically, you know, a lot of people feel like that I, I, I changed the tone of horror film, you know, photography with the original, and that they feel like I did it again with the remake. With the remake, that I took it into a, you know, a much more sophisticated, higher level uh, of you know style. Um, yeah, abs- absolutely. It's it's the best remake bar none. It really is uh, the best horror I remake so. out there. I think so too. You know, I think that that's not that's not only my work, but Marcus's work as well. Um, you know, and the writing, you know, the script uh, is you know is quite good. Another one other story I want to tell you about the remake uh, is that you know I didn't I just I was the only person who was back on the remake. Right, no one else got got hired. Right? I was the only person who was back, and I thought this is going. If I'm sitting here every minute going, I mean, originally we did this. Originally, this going to be fucking bloody boring. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to mention it. I'm just not going to talk about it. You know. Now, Jessica Beale, she was really cool, right? She she with her assistant 
every weekend, either on a Saturday or Sunday, they'd call me up, come on, we'd go out, we'd get loaded and go to a barbecue place, and she would have me tell stories about the original. She just loved to hear the stories about making the original. That's cool. Um, yeah, she was all into that. Uh, she's a very cool person. I mean, she is beautiful inside and out. Uh, you know, when I, uh, when the first time we shot her, her shots of her in the van was something we did early. They called me up from Technicolor. It was the lab, and they said, listen, because, you know, we put 1,000-foot loads up on the film cameras, right? So they run 11 minutes at a time. They could run for 11 minutes. They said, from now on, when you shoot Jessica, don't turn the camera off. Just let it roll out. We're quite happy to look at her all day long. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I was as well. You know, she's great. I mean, you know, there's, there, it's an interesting thing between a cinematographer and a leading lady, right? It's not to say it has to be romantic, but it kind of has to be flirtatious, the relationship, right? There, you know, there's no, nothing romantic between her and I. But, but I did like her a lot, and she did like me, and that, and that, that, that helps, you know, in that, in that situation. Sure. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say to you was about this thing where I'm not going to be telling people, you know, the way we did the original was this, this, and I'm going to be talking about it. Everybody's going to hate me if I do that. Well, it comes time to hang the guy on the meat hook in the remake, right? And they're going to show, all right, here's the rehearsal, right? They got a winch, and the winch has got some ridiculous ratio. It could probably, you know, lift up several tons. But anyhow, they press the button, and and he's going up it takes like 30 seconds to get him up to the altitude where he's going to be put <laughs> under the hook and then, you know and then they lower him down in and I go guys that's not how that's not how it's done. this is not going to work that's not going to freak some people out it's the planting of the hook in the back you know the violence of that the, the you know the force that that's done with not this you know slowly lifting the thing up like we're opening up, uh, you know, uh, um, a survival, you know, uh, shelter or something like that. Both giant doors opening, you know, something very slow. So I told them how we did the original. I said, guys, you know, we're going to take the hook, and you're going to we're going to show them coming towards the hook with the hook in the foreground, and then we're going to take them and we make this harness that goes on his legs. Comes a strap comes up his back, and there's an O-ring on the strap. We then turn the hook around the other way. Uh, the, the Leatherface character will hold him very high. He's already threaded onto the hook, but the hook is facing away from his back. And and when we bring him down, and the O-ring settles in the bottom of that hook, it will jerk his whole body, you know. And so th basically, we did it that way. And but that was really the only time that I mentioned anything about the the original. It probably also had something to do with them, you know, their concern about me, you know, saying, oh, it's going to become all about you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. It turns out to be all about you because they, they, they needed you. I know. It's like, <laughs> that, 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 that was, you know, there, there's three different conversations. Another one was also, there was another ridiculous one too, and they go, well, Michael Bay, you know, uh, he, he wants to make sure you're going to be, you know, uh, this Austin, that you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be too hard on this Austin crew, right? Because I have a bit of a reputation of being, you know, a guy. look, I'm passionate about filmmaking, right? That's all. When we're on the set, that's all I give a fuck about. Nothing else is important to me except for the shots and, you know, my, the, the, the good of the film and me you know, exercising my craft. That's all I care about. And I don't give a shit about people on their phones. I don't give a shit about people, you know, whatever else it is. You know, and if I find somebody that's fucking off, I'm, I, I, I'll get on them, right? 
So Michael Bay wants to tell me how I got to behave. And, you know, Michael Bay, I don't know if you guys know, he's like, you know, he's famous as the hothead of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And Mark Nisbell is like second in, you know, ranked in that. So we were having a lot of arguments about money. And I said, you know what? When he said, oh, yeah, Michael's going to want to tell you how you got to behave with the crew. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, look, are you, you guys don't even have to pay me. I said, if I'm allowed to record and sell, Michael Bay instructs Daniel Pearl on how to behave on a Marcus Nisbell set. I said, that, that I could sell that and make money. I'll make more money than shooting your movie, selling that to people. Uh, <laughs> Marcus, when he heard about it, he goes, are they fucking crazy? He goes, I want everybody to be scared shitless of you. I want that cast to be fucking freaked out of you. You're going to be the... <laughs> You're gonna set the tone in this movie. I want you. You are the horror. You're gonna bring the horror to this film. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. He did it himself. Well, and I gotta say, on the remake, is that ensemble? Those five kids. I call them kids because they're you know they were still they were in their twenties. They were adults. But you know, Jessica and and you know and 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 Jonathan and Eric and that, that and Mike and uh, God, I can't remember the other girl's name. Uh, anyhow, that was the greatest ensemble I ever worked with. Really? Really, really great ensemble. Uh, Marcus is a pretty nutty guy, you know. And um, ever since then, I've done three more movies with Marcus, and he's done a couple of pictures since. Without me, we we fell apart after Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, he's always lost his cast, um, and, but that cast they just sort of uh, they just turned to each other and. Um, and they just thought his they thought his routine was quite humorous, and uh, they they just they sort of got on with it. Uh, but in the other movies that we made sense, he, he had a real problem with you know he alienated he he starts to he you know actors they want to they want to talk about the performance and their character. And for Marcus, he's already thought all this out in his mind, so he just wants him to do what he wants. You know, so he treats them a bit too much like furniture. You know, because because he's already knows what he wants them to do, and they want to discuss it. And he he's always in a rush too. He always wants to shoot quickly, and so he doesn't want to take the time. And so, um, but that cast they were they were brilliant. I I worked with any one of them again. I actually had the pleasure to shoot a short with Jonathan uh, Jonathan Tucker not that long ago. It was still great to work with. Yeah, I, I do I do want to say uh, Daniel Pearl is in my cool book now. You have been one of the best guests we have ever had. Well, thank you. You know, the fact that they brought you back to shoot the remake kind of intrigued me. You know what you got is you got a bunch of people who just had, you know, we were young. I was 23, right? Toby was 25, I think. Um, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, Larry Carroll, our editor, uh, he's quite good. And Gunner, but, you know, we were just, uh, it was strange because I think that we probably had, I mean, yeah, I went to film school and I had my master's degree. But those guys, I mean, even at the time, I didn't, think I would learn anything from them. They were a bunch of people with bad attitudes that couldn't make it in the film business. My inspiration while I was in graduate school came from a still photographer named Russell Lee. Uh, he was, you know, during the Depression working with uh, Dorothea Lang and Minor White. This was a man that when I met him, he was in his late 60s. He just wanted to share his knowledge. Um, he didn't like, He had a bunch of art students. He was teaching photography in the art school. And they all thought everything was one image, and they were very sort of rigid. And I was this guy that would come back with five or six views like I was shooting a sequence, right? And he, I'd never met anybody like him that was just so, sort of had done it, was very successful, and now wanted to share, right? Because all my film teachers I thought were just uptight because they couldn't make it. 
and he'd never met anybody that was like me. And the two of us got on like the house of fire. And that guy was, he really was, uh, throughout my education, he was the most inspirational man to me. Um, you know, the very first photograph I took for him was a house, a two minute exposure at night of one of these gingerbread houses in Austin, Texas that I've sold probably over a hundred prints of. I used to sell them when I was a student for 50 bucks a piece. And most recently, the, the American Society of Cinematographers sold a couple of them for a thousand bucks a piece to raise money. That's the story there. It's, it's been a pleasure, Daniel. Thank you. Yeah, Likewise. Take it easy, guys. Thanks, Dan. Take care. We'll see you.